и выше примим мы полет наших Hello and welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. This is Dmitry Perich. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today, my guests are Justin Bronk and Jack Watling, both uh, with the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, a leading defense and security think tank in the U.K. They have just written a terrific report on the Russian air war in Ukraine, which we'll discuss today. Guys, welcome to the show. Well, so let's start with... Um, your overall thoughts on the air war that the Russians have conducted, because for a long time you've seen all kinds of memes on social media. Where's the VKS, the the Vazdushna uh, Kosmichesky Sile, or Russian um, airspace forces, the air and space branches are combined in the Russian military. But it turns out it was there, right? Yeah. So I mean, I, I think what I'd highlight is is it was there. The first three days, in particular, when Ukrainian GBAD was, and indeed Russian GBAD as well, for different reasons. Uh, was pretty much out of the picture, um, resetting, relocating, um, repairing in some cases. Uh, there was something a bit closer to what people expected, albeit we didn't really see it from the outside. There was quite a lot of air combat. The Russians ran uh, hundreds of airstrikes, mainly going after air defense targets, so often actually missing them because said targets had relocated. But you know there was quite a lot of strike activity. There were quite a lot of fighter patrols. Um, ranging up to about 300 kilometers beyond the lines of contact, so relatively deep penetrations. But then once the GBAD uh, kind of was sorted out and increasingly became uh, effective again on both sides, um, you've seen a, a kind of a degree of mutual denial. And, and GBAD is ground-based uh, air defense. Yeah, uh, so surface-to-air missile systems primarily, um, so particularly at medium and higher level, uh, the uh, mobile radar-guided uh, surface-to-air missile systems, SA-11 Book or SA-8 Osa, uh, SA-10, S-300, as the Russian designation would have it. Um, and so when those were you know, coming back online, the Russians couldn't really sequence all of the, the disparate capabilities that they might have had across their multi-role fleets into um, proper complex uh, air operations to uh, you know, create something where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, if that makes sense. Uh, so basically a, a kind of suppression and destruction of enemy air defenses or a CAD-DAD campaign, uh, as the US certainly would see it, um, wasn't something they could do. Uh, and as a result, they had to revert to low level where the range of radar-guided threats is significantly lower. But then they were stuck within the, the range of manpads, shoulder-fired anti-aircraft uh, missiles. Uh, and so they relatively quickly had to stop that as well. But the key takeaway for me would be that... Uh, the West has kind of had a, a an accurate picture throughout most of the war in the sense that the VKS is not currently effective and it has not been particularly effective during the war in terms of an ability to shape the ground war uh, and, and kind of give Russian forces what should be an advantage given how much firepower and how far, uh, the extent to which they outmatch, technically speaking, uh, Ukrainian fighter aircraft. Um, but that is only because those those ground defenses, those surface-to-air missile systems are still there and active. And so it remains a serious threat in being, one that for good reason hasn't been prioritized in terms of Western aid to counter it so far. But I think that that needs to change because what Ukraine is still fighting with to keep its airspace denied successfully up to now to fixed-wing and rotary uh, Russian aircraft is mostly still what they started the war with. Uh, we really haven't seen a sort of similar scale of, of support on the, the ground-based air defense side, particularly mobile SAMs. And that's partly because, you know, it wasn't the biggest threat. And it's also because the West doesn't have a, a huge amount of 
mobile, modern, ground-based uh, air defense systems. So there is a limit to how much we can immediately supply. Um, NASAM's deliveries are, are you know, very helpful, particularly because they can take AMRAM, uh, which is a, something we have quite a lot of because it's an air-to-air missile primarily. Uh, equally, German IRST, uh, excellent. But of course, the Ukrainians are trying to defend an enormous territory and they're having to keep most of the early SAMs defending cities and infrastructure um, against cruise missile attacks and things. So it's 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 definitely not close to enough, um, put it that way. So one of the things that um, really comes through in the report is that uh, the Russians aren't very good at suppression of air, enemy air defense mission. And, you know, in, in fairness, it's one of the hardest things that you can possibly do. And most air forces are not good at this. The United States and probably Israel are the best in the world at it. Uh, but um, you also highlight how um, the way that they orchestrated these strike packages uh, may have been problematic as well by using basically single um, aircraft strikes, um, not flying really in pairs or in, in significant strike formations, which makes it hard to do battle damage assessments and figuring out whether you actually hit what you wanted to hit. Um, how much of an impact do you think that has had and why do you think that they're doing that? It's had a massive impact. And it's also one of the things that I think was both hardest for the anal analytical community to predict beforehand and probably the most consequential in why a lot of pre-war analysis was inaccurate, certainly my own. Um, when we look at not just airstrikes, but missile strikes and the application of systems against targets, the Russians across the board have often actually had the capability to hit things. Um, they've known where it is, they've had the information, but they have often prioritized which munitions they put against which target in a completely inappropriate way. Um, very often firing, you know, two, three missiles at an airfield. You know, if we fire at an airfield with cruise missiles, we fire 100, right? Um, but do you think they had 100? I mean... No, no, they've got the depth. They had the depths of munitions. They could have gone that way in the beginning. Um, but instead, it was almost random. You would have, on the one hand, as I say, a few mission missiles put against an airfield. And then at the same time, uh, Iskander's being fired at very small troop concentrations, Ukrainian troop concentrations. So this lack of, I would say, familiarity in some ways among Russian planners with how much you need to actually deliver to achieve an effect seems to have been something that they've suffered from systematically in their planning. Um, the other issue is their kill chain. So they do not have a problem finding targets. That, and that's from Humint often. Um, but Even when those ta targets are mobile? Even when those targets are mobile, they have people who are actively reporting the locations of targets because they keep getting caught by the Ukrainians. Um, but it's happening all the time. The problem is those reports seem to be uh, taken into a centralized targeting process. It then takes about 24 hours for them to be loaded up into the systems, then distributed to strike aircraft, and it's 48 hours before anything shows up um, or before a missile's launched. That's if it's kind of a longer range capability that's trying to engage a target. Um, so, so they don't have a problem on collection, they have a problem on analysis and dissemination. Well, so the, that's a problem with dissemination, but they also have a pretty horrendous problem with analysis. And I think where this comes from is an inability to provide analysts with sufficient contextual information for them to make a judgment as to whether the information that is coming in is accurate or not. And secondly, a cultural problem where targeteers and people who are planning strikes presume that information is true unless it is explicitly contradicted. And the result is that we see them, sometimes they will detect a Ukrainian move, uh, unit moving in four locations. 
and they will then strike those four positions in sequence in the order of the detections, even though it's the same unit. So there isn't this verification of targets, uh, is it still present or relevant? They don't take them off the board. They seem to load them into the priority stack chronologically, uh, as in when it comes in, that goes to the bottom of the stack, rather than having some sort of prioritization of which of these are dynamic, which of them do we need to get after now. So very often they have the information, they have the munition, but they are across the board struggling to rapidly engage those targets. So one of the things you write in the report is that during the first um, three or four days of the war, they were fairly effective at hitting fixed um, radar locations and other air defense targets, but then sort of the mission changed, right? Um, talk a little bit about that. Uh, so, I mean, essentially about three days in, you saw a, a bit of a pause, um, uh, the, the Russians sort of going back to doing some, some more standoff strikes uh, in terms of their aircraft for a bit. Uh, and at the same time, a sort of rapid realization clearly at the, the, the Army Command level that the ground operation was bogging down and really wasn't going well. And so you get this kind of quite obvious retasking of effort as the Ukrainian GBAD also starts to come back up and inflict losses at medium level. So they're also simultaneously starting to try and fly low, um, which brings its own issues for them. But you see at that point a, a switch to trying to target um, you know, essentially frontline positions to um, you know, clear the way for uh, Ukrainian, for Russian troops to advance or, or push through strong points. The problem there being that especially if you're flying low, um, you're, you're, if you're low and fast, you have very, very short sightline time on your target, even if you know exactly where it is and your navigation is perfect so that you arrive at exactly the right point at exactly the right angle that you're expecting. Even then, you're trying to aim your, your in generally, free fall bombs because also precision guided munitions employment is very difficult at low level. Um, and so you're trying to aim free fall bombs or rockets in a, in a second or two in a single pass because if you come around again, you'll get shot down um, by manpads or, or even just by, by AAA. Um, and then, of course, you, you have to factor in that the communications plan is going very badly for the Russians. They're not always entirely sure exactly where their units are. Um, most of the, the Ukrainian units are using similar, if not identical, vehicles and weapon systems. Uh, particularly up north, it's muddy, it's cold, it's forested in a lot of the time. So in any case, target detection and, and recognition would be quite tricky. And so you add all of this together and you, you kind of get a, re get a read on why, um, particularly in the north, that air support is, is pretty ineffective. Uh, and they start at this point to lose really significant numbers of both jets and helicopters to manpads as well. Um, having gone low. And what are those, do you, do you know if those were stingers provided by the US or the old Soviet Iglas? Uh, the uh, most most common manpad is the Igla 1, which the Ukrainians uh, refurbished a very large number of them that they had in stock before the war, so over several years. Um, they did also have stingers. Later they received things like Starstreak HVM from the UK. Uh, so there's been a pretty broad range of manpad systems that have gone in. Uh, the Poles have provided some of their proprietary systems. Um, but in terms of quantity, it's Igla ones. Got it. And not to mention, there's also quite a lot of Strela uh, at the beginning as well, which was notably less effective. Nice. Um, and also actually Javelin being used in direct attack against helicopters, um, which it's quite effective. I think the other thing to flag about the change in VKS behavior is coming back to the process issue for them. In terms of confirming whether they had affected a target, they were basically using three things. One was whether the pilot says they hit it. Uh, which isn't necessarily accurate. Uh, the second and, is, and by the way, there are incentives for the pilots to say that you hit, hit the target, right? Absolutely, yeah. And they're not making a second pass, right? 
Um, the second is satellite imagery, which it looks like the Russians can only really obtain during the day, uh, and the quality of their electro-optical satellites appears to be very low, um, which meant that they fairly routinely fell for deception measures on the Ukrainian side in terms of you know look, making things look damaged. Um, the other proof of that is that the Russians have started to buy quite a large quantity of commercial satellite imagery of Ukraine. So it suggests their own capabilities at a sovereign level and not actually giving them what they need. Where do you think they're buying it from? Oh, the usual commercial providers. Um, and through like shell companies? Yes, think? precisely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the third thing is SIGINT, right? So listening for whether the Ukrainians were reporting that their equipment was damaged and what the Ukrainians did immediately was every time a strike went in, got on the radio and said, oh no, all my equipment's destroyed, it's tragic. But the result was that the VKS would then fly past positions assuming that they were neutralized when they weren't. Now, one of the things that you find uh, is that the, in terms of the air-to-air -air battles, the Russians actually had dominance, right? And particularly the Su-30 and the Su-35 aircraft are quite good and um, have the range on the Ukrainians in terms of their missiles Uh, to cause a lot of damage. So how um, did you find the Ukrainians responded to that and how effective was their air force? Um, so up front, the, uh, the, the Ukrainians were very aware from the get-go that they were outsticked, as you'd say, in the, in the, the, the flying world. Uh, so that in other words, Russian missile performance was significantly better than theirs, not just range, but also they have active seeker missiles. So they can turn away uh, once the missile is, is sort of between six to eight seconds to impact normally, um, which is quite a long way and, and quite a long time, particularly in a dynamic air combat scenario, um, because the missile at that point is tracking the enemy aircraft itself. Um, so you can break lock and maneuver and or, or guide additional missiles. You can also use what's called track while scan, which is essentially using only a small fraction of your, of your radar uh, capacity. So it, it's harder, it's less reliable that the Ukrainian pilots would get a launch warning or even a warning that they were being locked up at all, um, because the, the Russian fighters can use this, this TWS um, radar mode with the, the R-77 uh, uh, long-range missile, or medium-range missile, technically. Um, but so the Ukrainians, by contrast, using a missile that's not only shorter ranged, but it also is only semi-active, so they have to maintain a single-target track lock, so the Russians will receive a, a lock warning and then also a launch warning. Um, and... If the Ukrainians are either forced to turn nose cold, so they lose a lock that way, or the Russians manage to, for example, notch them by, by getting in a sort of 90-degree beam uh, position where there's, there's very little Doppler shift to, to work on because of the relative closure is then zero, um, and the Ukrainian radars would drop them for a half second or so, you know, even just a small break like that and the missile will miss. Um, so knowing that, the Ukrainians uh, essentially went low very quickly. Um, they knew that it wasn't there was no way they could essentially approach in a normal air combat sort of scenario where you would try and be as high and as fast as you can to maximize the range of your missiles because they were never going to have an even field there. So by going very low, very low in many cases, and trying to use you know terrain masking to kind of slip under Russian radar coverage um, and kind of ambush Russian jets from, from beneath, uh, that did give them a few opportunities in various cases to get into firing range and claim various kills. But of course, it A, their own sensor picture is, is significantly worse down there. Um, B, they were at risk of man pads from both sides. Um, man pads notably don't have IFF um, most friend, of the time. Friend of foe system. Identification friend of foe, exactly. Um, and troops with man pads tend to shoot at most things that they see. Um, so that was dangerous in itself. 
um, but also, uh, you know, the, the Ukrainians just losing a lot of a lot of jets during this period because by going low, it gives them a chance to, if they get lucky and uh, you know being very brave, trying to kind of close the distance and, and get into a range where they can shoot. Um, but by doing so, they're also making their range disparity even worse than it would be if they were at co-altitude because if you're flying low and slow when you launch, um, well, comparatively slow, your missile starts out not only with less energy in terms of speed, but it also then starts out in dense air, so there's a lot more drag, um, and it has to climb. Um, so in that sort of between about six and eight seconds of motor, rocket motor burn, it's mostly just using that energy to climb. It's not gaining a huge amount of speed, and so then when the missile burn, when the motor burns out and it's coasting, it just doesn't have much range. So comparing that to the Russian fighters who are launching from high and fast, um, so it's even further exacerbating that that range disparity. Um, and of course, they were outnumbered as well. So it, I think there's, a, there's another aspect to this as well, which is that you know the Russians never really prioritized the suppression and destruction of enemy air defenses as their primary mission, because if you were fighting NATO, that isn't fundamentally what our forces field to uh, try and protect ourselves. We would be doing defensive counter air. Um, and so the Russians have put most of their technology and investment and capability development into two tasks. One, GPAD. Uh, so ground-based air defenses of their own, which is very, very effective and has proven effective in this conflict. Another reason why the Ukrainians were driven low. And secondly, into that air-to-air capability so that when the Russians are on the defense, they can try and intercept offensive counter-air or penetrating aircraft uh, on our side. And so it kind of makes sense that that's where the VKS was more effective. One final point I would say in terms of the disparity is that you know the Ukrainians were flying soviet design systems that the russians knew pretty well and their electronic warfare is pretty effective against those systems and so the ukrainians were routinely losing air-to-air comms ground-to-air comms radar etc navigation uh because of electronic attack um so this is an important point that you just made so it's not that the russian air force is terrible at everything it's that the mission matters and the mission that they've trained for traditionally vis-a-vis nato is very different from the mission that they're encountering here right yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a, a wider problem with how the Russians planned and executed the operation, which is that they didn't tell the people that they were going to war, right? So if you read through uh, the transcripts of, say, interrogation of Russian pilots that have been shot down, um, some of those guys will make the point that their aircraft, because they have their own aircraft essentially assigned to them and they have them in the unit, they do their training in the unit, their aircraft wasn't actually fully uh, airworthy when they were suddenly given the mission to go into hostile airspace and do a strike. They hadn't been given any warning to do mission planning. It was just suddenly, right, this is now the mission, strike this target. Even though uh, one pilot, for example, his aircraft's nav system was being repaired at the time where he had been ordered to take off and do this, and yet he just had to go and fly it. Uh, Which is why you've seen, I think, video of, of, for example, uh, Russian pilots using commercial navigation systems in their cockpits and all sorts of weird stuff like that. It's partly because they weren't given enough time to be able to plan a deliberate CNDAD campaign at lower level. The Ukrainians have had a very effective information ops campaign, uh, you know, inventing this uh, mythical um, uh, ghost of Kiev uh, pilot that shut down almost the entire Russian Air Force. But do, do you have the numbers or approximate numbers of how many air-to-air kills they've actually executed? Uh, it, they don't know, um, is the short answer. And, and the reason they don't know is precisely the point that Justin just made. They might fire at something, but confirming that 
they have actually killed something if it's beyond visual range, for example, is really, really hard. And so one of the reasons why you have a very inflated kill count from the Ukrainians in the air war is that they, they're actually declaring possible shootdowns. It's the same for their uh, air defense systems, right? When they fire at a Russian plane, if the green dot disappears off the screen, does that mean you've killed it? It might well be over Russian lines or Russian airspace, or does it just mean that it dove or that you, know, you lost contact? Um, so I can't give you specific numbers, and actually neither can the Ukrainians. There are numbers for confirmed kills, which are substantially lower. Um, they're quite sensitive, as you can imagine. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to share those specifics. But um, yeah, the confirmed kill count is substantially lower than the one that's being publicly pushed around. But, but they've, they've hit at least something, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I was speaking to one Ukrainian pilot who was describing being in an air-to-air engagement and he, he reported having damaged the Russian aircraft. So he, he saw it. He saw that he had hit it. It didn't go down. Uh, and one of his own, uh, his colleague's aircraft was subsequently damaged as well and managed to land. Um, so that's another aspect of this, which is the effect on an aircraft is not necessarily very um, predictable. One of the other really interesting things in the report um, that you talk about is the communications issues. And we've known since the beginning of this war that the Russians have had terrible troubles communicating. Um, It looks like they didn't uh, bring their crypto to load into their radios. They've had issues with their radios, been confiscating cell phones from the Ukrainians. But you write that this actually had an impact on the uh, electronic warfare campaign and the air war itself. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, so in terms of the the crypto impact, um, it's more, I think, significant for being evidence of the fact that ground crews or maintenance crews uh, or maintenance cycles, at least, are not necessarily aligned with the correct training, with the correct airframe assignments to be flying as their aircraft is supposed to be. So, for example, helicopters being found without uh, the crypto keys. It's not necessarily as significant an operational defect given what they're using those aircraft for most of the time, at the moment at least, which or, or for most of the war, which is not penetrating, um, you know, just lobbing rockets near the front line, as it would presumably be in, in a ground scenario, and this isn't my area of expertise, so I'll defer, defer to Jack there, but, um, you know, being, for example, uh, geolocated uh, because you're using non-secure comms uh, is probably less of an issue for a Russian helicopter when it's spending most of its time at, you know, 60 to 250 feet. Um, on its own side of the lines, going to and from, shuttling back and forth with rockets, than it would be for a, a, an infantry section that that's doing things that it shouldn't from a from a comms point of view, and that leads to it being triangulated or something. I mean, the other thing I'd flag is that uh, again the EW fratricide problem, right? So a lot of the Russian systems, when they turn on a lot of their electronic warfare suites will suppress their own communications um, or will knock out their own radar because they just automatically start targeting radar that are nearby. Um, If they do wide area denial of GPS and GLONASS, which they do for force protection across large areas of the battlefield, it has the same effect for their own UAVs and aircraft. And so a lot of the time the Russians have to decide which bit of the spectrum they're going to try and disrupt and when. Well, could, could they just shut down GPS and leave GLONASS off on? Uh, well, to be honest, most weapon systems in the theater at the moment rely on uh, GLONASS, Baidu, GPS, and inertial navigation. Uh, and so most of the systems will just go to the one that's not being denied. But yeah, there is this game continually of, of 
if you deny if the Russians deny everything in the spectrum in an area, they then can't communicate, which means and they can't use a lot of their own systems, which means that they can't then tell their people to turn off those EW systems, right? So they're continually playing in the spectrum and disrupting, but before the war, everyone was kind of theorizing about denial, and that really isn't what happens in the EMS, because people still need to communicate. And so it's this continual game of cat and mouse of what's actually still working and how can you exploit that scene for advantage. And you're right that after two days, they basically dramatically scaled down electronic warfare because of this, right? Uh, yeah, so there was an initial set of uh, radio electronic strikes, as they would put it, uh, then they ran into this problem with their ground forces uh, getting into trouble, going off timeline, uh, not having their communications working, and they needed to communicate. So the EW started to be dialed back. Also, by that point, a lot of the EW baselines were a long way behind the, the front line, right? So they needed to be repositioned. And then from about day 10 onwards, you started to see electronic warfare really starting to shake out and come back online. So that by the end of March, it was pretty pervasive and by uh, the offensive against the Donbass, um, it was a, a massively saturated uh, electronic warfare environment. And, and that's probably why you've seen a lot fewer uh, drone strikes um, after that initial battle of Kiev, right? The TB2s were much less prevalent in the Donbass. Uh, do you think it's because of the increased EW uh, from the Russian side? Yeah, absolutely. And the ground-based air defenses coming online, right? Like Those things are not survivable. Uh, and so they were useful for about three days in that role um, and they may become useful again like there are opportunities where the Russians are falling back things are disrupted you can maybe push them in but most of the time they're being used for maritime surveillance at the moment one of the other things that's really interesting is that um, the lack of uh, tankers um, in the Russian Air Force is creating a huge problem for their close air, uh, air patrol missions right um, they just can't fly for as long period of time over the battlefield um, Talk about that impact as well. So, I mean, the, the, the lack of tankers is is really key thing, I think, to understanding not only where the VKS is currently, but but where why it failed to do what we expected it to do, or at least most of the analytical community, myself included, expected it to do. Um, I guess because we one has to treat it as, you know, evidence of absence. Sorry, ab absence of evidence is not evidence of absence until proven. But, um, you know, Russia does have tankers, um, Lucian 76 based tankers uh, but they tend to spend most of their time supporting the strategic bomber and maritime patrol and uh, electronic intelligence forces um, and there's not a huge number of them compared to say the US or, or even European air forces so the majority of their fighter fleets don't have tanker support most of the time and a lot of their crews are not likely to be current on tankers um, because air-to-air -air refueling is something you need to do reasonably frequently um, in order to be safe and, and reliable at. Um, because, of course, you know, even relatively good pilots uh, take a while to get the knack in the, when they first learn and then need refreshers. And even then, you still sometimes have people who have real difficulty refueling, particularly if it's at night or they're under stress, particularly if they're really low on fuel. You can have people push, you know, multiple, multiple tries trying to get on the basket or, or get in the right area. And so... If you're planning a mission based on the assumption of tanker availability, you have to be pretty confident that your crews are going to do it properly um, because even one person having a, a really bad day can have ripple effects across the whole thing. Um, so it, it affects how long they can keep their fighters on station um, in terms of what they're primarily doing uh, with most of their sorties at the moment, which is flying um, 
eight pairs uh, of, of fighters on, on combat air patrol near Ukrainian lines, but on the Russian side of them. Uh, at high altitude. And, and they only have about two hours, right, worth of fuel. Yeah, so two hours is, is, is probably a relatively optimistic or generous assessment, depending on how, it depends how far they're operating from their own bases. So, for example, if in the, they're in the south and they're flying from Belbek in Crimea, then that's a very short transit. They probably have a little bit more time on station. Um, the Sukhoi 35, Sukhoi 30 both have a reasonable internal fuel volume, um, but, and they're relatively efficient toting around at very high altitude. Again, another advantage for the Russians being able to stay high uh, on their own sides of the lines, as opposed to the Ukrainians, down low jet engines are massively less fuel efficient. So the Ukrainians are much more constrained on range as well. Um, but, you know, the MiG-31 as well, at huge internal fuel capacity. It's quite thirsty, but, um, you know, they, they, they can probably extend caps, uh, cap time on station to maybe two hours on vol time. Um, and so, you know, if that's a working average on the upper end, then that works out to about a, a hundred sorties a day, just under to, to run those eight caps um, with pair on each all day. Um, Russia's flying about 140 sorties a day. So that gives you an idea of how much of the activity is, is that for now. And that's gone down over time, right? It has, yeah. For a while, it was at about two to 300 sorties a day. Um, but uh, yeah, it's about 140 uh, at the moment, um, or at least it was a few weeks ago. Um the, the, but the, the sort of bigger impact of a lack of tanker availability is it really explains uh, or at least helps to explain that lack of uh, a capability to sequence together large complex strike packages um, in the way that the West kind of does air power when it when it tries to push into contested airspace, particularly to run a CAD campaign because you need you know, electronic warfare assets, you need suppression shooters so with uh, aircraft shooting anti-radiation missiles, for example, to force... SAM systems to turn their radars off and reposition. Um, you then need aircraft to go in and do try and do hard kills, so DAD against those SAMs that are now suppressed. The Russians tried a bit of that with with uh, singles or pairs of Su-25s going in low um, to try and hunt SAMs when when um, fighters at high level had been firing anti-radiation missiles from a distance. Um, generally unsuccessful and very high risk because also Su-25 pilots aren't really trained for that mission and there are not many crews who are experienced enough to go and do it and flying around at low level, trying to penetrate a little bit into Ukrainian lines is a good way to get hit with man pads. Um, but, uh, you know, if you were trying to sequence together, if you imagine, you know, harm shooters, hard kill DAD uh, assets, a strike package that is sufficiently threatening that the ground defences have to open up and expose themselves because they can't afford to let you get to target, fighter cover, um, probably an AWACS, probably a, a, you know, a, a, a command and control asset, um, like an IL-20 in their case, if you think about trying to sequence all of that together, you would have them assemble at a, at a kind of rendezvous point on their way out in, in a combined flight plan or air tasking order. They'd be coming from all different sorts of bases all around the theatre. And so, you know, inevitably someone will have a tech, tech issue taxiing out and have to replace a jet with another jet that's on standby. Or, you know, there'll be a weather issue that someone will have to divert or, or wait for a thunderstorm to pass. And so be 20 minutes late, let's say. Um, at which point, if you have tanker support, that's not a huge issue. Um, you will basically top everything off um, in the strike package in the hold and then push in uh, to, to enemy airspace. But if you don't have tanker support, all you need is for one little thing like that to start going wrong. And one aspect of the strike package is now either having to be left behind or you're risking everybody or significant other portions not having enough fuel to actually do the mission by the time everyone's there and ready to go. Um, we sort of don't really, I think, think enough about how critical tanker support is to that complexity that we almost take for granted in the western air instrument um, partly because the USAF just has so many tankers 
and did did you see them using tankers in Syria or were those short missions that they didn't need to? Uh, no, generally not. So there were a few occasions where tankers came in, but that was also partly because they were um, bringing in transport material as well. So the, the IL-76, uh, um, I think it's MD-90, I can't remember the exact designation, um, but their modernized tankers uh, can also operate some cargo capacity, much like the RAF's ones, um, different design of aircraft, but same idea. Um, but where they were shuttling things in and out or refueling heavy heavy cargo aircraft, um, you know, taking shipments a long way from Russia into Syria, um, that you know there were, in other words, relatively specialist missions that had some tanker support. But generally, the close air support, the fighter patrols, no, because apart from anything else, they were operating close to their own air base, and so you know, not particularly necessary most of the time. The war, the war is now in its ninth month, and um, you know there's been a, obviously a very high intensity air war going on. What do you think has been the impact on the airframes of the Russian fixed wing aircraft, as, as well as the whole supporting infrastructure on the ground? Um, do you think that they're starting to get under some serious um, pressures in terms of things breaking, replacement parts, and so forth? So if you look at uh, what they did in Syria, uh, they it was it was partly this was to to increase the number of pilots who who got um, quote unquote combat experience, um, but uh, they they tended to cycle fleets through, so they wouldn't necessarily uh, have a rotation of most sorts within a fleet. So you know replace let's say five Su twenty fives with an with another five or six Su twenty fives. Um, they would tend to have a Su-25 rotation and then it would be replaced by a Su-30 rotation or a Su-34 rotation, although they were there most of the time, or a Su-24. Um, you know, the fighters would rotate between Su-30 or Su-35 um, because primarily they, they, they've tended in the past to like running a fleet for a bit in a position and then switch it out for something else while that whole fleet kind of resets. Um in Ukraine, they haven't been able to do that because they've had such a draw on capacity that they've been essentially... Um, operating all types in multiple roles, um, which is not necessarily something the crews are very well trained for. Um, there's certainly more uh, fatigue building up in the ground attack fleets um, than the fighters, because apart from anything else, the fighters are toting around at high altitude. Um, it's not a hugely fatigue-inducing thing to be to be doing cap for a couple of hours at high altitude, whereas the ground attackers, particularly the Su-25s and 35s, so 34s, are... Um, doing a lot of very, very low-level flying, um, dropping unguided bombs, firing rockets, um, and very low-level flying is extremely fatigue-inducing for the airframe. It's very bumpy, it's dense air, it's high drag. Um, there's danger from debris, bird strikes, all of that sort of stuff. Um, but it's also just extremely tiring for the pilots um, because you really can't relax at all. Um, so we are seeing accidents start to pile up. Um, there were three in a couple of weeks uh, in, an, in late September, early October, uh, Su-25 and then a, a Su-34 and a, and a MiG-31. Each one individually on its own, you can explain by you know, pilot error or bird strikes, but it would seem to add up to a pattern that would fit with the expectation, given the amount of activity, that aircraft are basically being run uh, on waivers. They're probably past their normal 50-hour checks, 100-hour checks, 250-hour well, checks. It's worth noting as well that the way that the Russians do maintenance on their platforms is that you don't check the aircraft when it comes in you know talk to the pilot about anything that went wrong and fix it instead it basically works on the assumption that this this aircraft has flown for x number of hours the book says you therefore replace these components at that time and they are then done now coming back to justin's point about rotating fleets 
if you're running a whole fleet and you start hitting some of those at the same time across multiple aircraft, because they're all flying these missions, uh, large components needing to be replaced if according to the book, then that suddenly is a really, really big maintenance job. Um, and so you run into that sort of issue. The other thing is we are seeing at the same time as fatigue in terms of pilots being tired, uh, ground crew making mistakes. Um, so there was a, a, a Russian aircraft uh, helicopter that was shot down but was largely intact um, a couple of months ago. And when the Ukrainians got to it, it still had the remove before flight over its sensors, uh, the red covers. And it also had the sensors in the stowed position, as in for travel. So they were fixed and couldn't move. Um, and that was flying a combat mission, right? Um, so the ground crew just didn't remove Someone the, in the U.S. would get court-martialed over that, right? <laughs> someone would get in a lot of trouble, yeah. I mean, this is where someone makes a joke about the Royal Navy removing uh, covers from the engine intakes of F-35s on the Queen Elizabeth, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so let, let's talk about the Gila War now, because one of the things you highlight in the report is that during kind of February and March, it was actually quite effective, right? Um, uh, their um, uh, healer aircraft, uh, particularly the KA-52s, right? Yeah, so they, they were running um, quite aggressive uh, hunter-killer missions in fairly typical fashion, um, both by day and night. Uh, the Camel 52 fleet in particular has been, been more active than the rest and has taken more losses. Uh, but it, it's also doctrinally the the only one of the uh, gunship fleets that is supposed to have a night role as a core part of its its kind of purpose, because it's specifically the Camel 52 was procured to support uh, special operations forces, um, so was intended for relatively deep penetrations of the lines, often in very bad weather, because that's generally, or, or at night when special operations forces have more flexibility to be inserted or to move around. Um, and so compared to the other fleets, it has uh, supposed to, it is supposed to have at least better uh, night vision compatibility in terms of a cockpit design for it, a better forward looking infrared suite um, and, you know, a side by side crew layout to maximize efficiency of the quite high workload of doing attack missions at low level uh, at night. On the other hand, um, it's significantly less well armoured than the old Heinz. Um, notably, for example, the engine compartment is not armoured at all. Um, and so you've seen various cases of Camel 52s being brought down by quite small calibre small arms fire that got lucky. Um, so, of course, by day, that's more of a problem than by night. Um, and generally speaking, the, the defensive aid suites have been quite effective against mad pads. It's more just the sheer number of launches is something's going to get through, especially if you are flying relatively deep penetrations where, um, unlike in kind of counterinsurgency conflicts, where generally speaking there might be a, a threat in being, but the the kind of known concentrations of, of enemy activity or the, the operation you're supporting is probably in a fairly confined area, um, whereas in this case you may have to fly over quite a lot of contested space where you have to be dispensing um, in a preemptive manner. Um in order to penetrate. So even with quite large flare um, capacity, they're potentially running low on countermeasures by the time they're coming out. So you, one thing you've seen on both sides is far more losses in the exfil portion of a flight than the infill, uh, even where the route is generally, it's not, they're not going out by the same route they came in, but um, you know, partly defences are, are up, um, more likely to be alerted, but it's also just by that point, countermeasures are likely to be running low. Um, also, they, they've got real vibration dampening issues uh, on the camels. So when the uh, stub wings are heavily loaded, they, they vibrate at certain 
um, power settings and will literally visibly be kind of flapping, um, which will do absolutely terrible things to the fatigue life, but also to any seekers on any weapons um, that have uh, advanced seekers, so ATGMs, for example, uh, on those stub wings. It points to bad operational test and evaluation, um, you know, sloppy, frankly, um, that they didn't choose to go after those vibration issues in the Kamov. Um, and also the, the Vichir, the, the ATGM that they use on the Kamov specifically, is different from the other attack helicopters, and its seeker points backwards. It's a laser beam rider. Um, rather than having the, no, the seeker on the front uh, looking for a ref, uh, laser reflection from a target, the seeker is on the back, and it looks for the kind of the laser beam from the helicopter, which actually imposes significantly more stringent limits on how much the helicopter can drift per second, sideways or up and down, um, while it's guiding. Uh, and so you've seen a number of camels get hit by anti-tank guided missiles, wire-guided stu- uh, Stugner? Stugner P. Uh, Stugner P, um, because they're sen- essentially in the hover um, while guiding, uh, moving really very little, if at all. And so, you know, at the point where you're getting attack helicopters regularly, you know, it's, it's, it's multiple engagements at this point across many months, being hit by wire-guided ATGMs. You know, something is wrong with your TTPs and your weapon integration. Uh, it also doesn't help that the defensive counter-raid suite on the uh, K-52 is not very effective. So it doesn't work very well. So is that why after kind of uh, the initial battle of Kiev and in April and onwards, you're seeing a lot less activity from the helos? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're essentially just defaulting after that to either standoff ATGM use against targets they can identify from a relatively safe distance at low level on their side of the lines, or um, doing these sort of rocket lofting attacks, which both sides have been doing a a great deal of, um, which aren't as inaccurate as you might think, in the sense that uh, all of these attack uh, helicopter helicopter gunships... um, you know, do have aiming cues in their avionics systems for these sort of lofting uh, rocket attacks. Um, you know, even Western you know, Apache has a has a capability to do that. The accuracy will depend on uh, how good the aircraft's avionics are, particularly at measuring things like drift, um, at, you know, wind speed, temperature, pressure. Uh, how much of that is taken into account? How accurately? How well fitted the weapon systems are? You know, because alignment becomes quite key. Um, you know things like the Camel Camel Fifty Two actually have movable pylon, uh, um, adjustable pylon angles. So how well are those matched to the ballistic uh, computer in the in the aircraft will affect things, and how accurately the, uh, a given delivery pro- profile is being flown. But it is essentially a responsive form of of grad artillery. Um, so to suppress uh, troops and keep them in a position, or to force them to take cover while moving, which then might keep them in place long enough to call down other artillery if there are UAVs up, for example. It's not as useless as you'd think, um, but it certainly indicates uh, a, a, a deep unwillingness on the part of Russian pilots to uh, penetrate the front lines from, from April onwards, pretty much. Uh, and it's notable that they still keep losing helicopters despite being very cautious with them. And it seems like you know they haven't learned a lot from the war in Afghanistan, right, when they lost uh, uh, helicopters to, to the man pads there. Um, let's talk about the third element of the air war, which is the missiles. Ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and loitering munitions, particularly now, um, those that they're getting from uh, Iran. Um, how much of a problem are they really causing for the Ukrainians? Huge problem. Uh, huge problem for three reasons. Firstly, they are accurate, and the Russians have good intelligence on the energy infrastructure and other critical national infrastructure, which they are hitting and degrading. 
at the moment it's not horrendously cold, but things can get pretty chilly in Ukraine, and the humanitarian consequences of that are uncomfortable. Um, the second reason why it's a huge problem is that in order to protect their cities, the Ukrainians are having to concentrate a lot of their air defense around them, and therefore they have much less defensive cover of their uh, combat units. And the third vulnerability uh, that it's driving is a drastic increase in the expenditure of air defense munitions. And there is a finite quantity of those munitions, uh, which will eventually be exhausted. And as Justin highlighted before, once those medium altitude uh, air defenses are no longer uh, armed, then the VKS can start bombing from medium altitude and they gain a very substantial amount of flexibility, opportunity, etc., to support the Russian military. So the long-range strike campaign over time starts to potentially bring the VKS back into play. Now, the Ukrainians are claiming a great deal of success in shooting down some of those missiles. Um, in, in fact, there are some videos where they're claiming success shooting them down with man pads or javelins. Um, how much of that is real? Um, uh, do you think that they're actually shooting down the cruise missiles? Are they shooting down the Iskander ballistic missiles that have some maneuver capability? Um, um, so in the, in, the first, in the first uh, 10 days of the conflict, they were getting about an 18% intercept success rate. Uh, that has climbed steadily over the course of the conflict, partly because the Russians stopped doing large-scale salvo fires, and secondly because... Uh, the Ukrainians became much more, well, their air defences were less suppressed, essentially. Um, and so they were getting about 40 to 60% successful interception rate, fairly consistently. Um, and that's, they get higher than that against um, the loitering munitions. However, ballistic missiles are a very different problem set. So while they get that success against cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, um, it depends what it is, Tochkau, they are able to intercept sometimes, depending on whether they have uh, S-300 in the right place. Uh, Iskander, almost no successful interceptions. Um, and Iskander, there's, Iskander is the uh, system's name, but there's two missiles involved, right? There's 9M720, which they do get some successful interceptions against, but it's very scarce. The other one is 9M723, which has yeah uh, additional capabilities um, in terms of decoys that it puts out, uh, penetration aids. Um, that mean that it is very, very hard to do. Uh, and so that missile is almost always getting through. Um, the problem for the Russians there is that they don't have a huge number of them. Do, do you have a sense overall of where they are? I mean, obviously it's sort of the $64,000 question, but you know, in terms of both the cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, are they, you know, what, what's your best guess? Is it 50% expanded, 70%, any, any ideas? And obviously, they're trying to build new ones as, as it goes as well. But Yeah, so the Russians, are, just to take Iskander, the Russians are able to build six a month. Um, they, best estimate, came into the war with about 900 of them in stockpile. Um, and they've fired probably approaching half of that at this point. But there are other systems, so using S-300 in the ground attack role, where the Ukrainians assess that they've gone through about 10% of their stocks. Uh, and then there are other systems where they've used a very high proportion of their stocks, right? So certain classes of caliber munition, for example, are really low. Um, so one of the things we've observed is that the Russians are often using munitions for purposes that they were not originally designed. Anti-ship missiles against 
ground targets, for example, which really screws with some of our calculations in terms of how long they can keep this up. Um, and, and do they lose anything by using those missiles other than expanding those stocks? I mean, are they still effective at hitting their targets? Uh, depends what you shoot them at, right? Um, and we have definitely seen uh, instances where, for example, a anti-ship missile is fired at a known military target uh, in a large civilian area. Um, and it looks for the biggest piece of metal in the designated area because it's designed to look for a ship against the sea, right? And therefore strikes a civilian object. Um, so there are plenty of instances of these munitions being used inappropriately and therefore not being effective. At the same time, uh, so long as you, you understand you know, what you're actually going after, Caliber has been very effective against energy infrastructure, for example, um, including its anti-ship variant. So it kind of depends. It depends how well it's employed and it depends how well the mission planners have lined up the way that a particular missile works versus the type of target they're trying to hit. And what's your view on these Iranian drones, the Shahed 136s and others that they're now procuring? Uh, what is the impact of those on the battlefield? Um, so there's, yeah, the, the Iranian drones have been refined over a long period of time, largely in Yemen. Uh, the quality in the build quality between the ones that the IRGC were sending into Yemen and building in Yemen versus the ones that we're seeing in Russia is a drastic improvement. Uh, they are EW protected, so they've got hardened electronics. Um, they carry a pretty reasonable payload in terms of being able to affect what they're going after with them. It's what, like 20, 40 kilograms or yeah. something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, it it's pretty difficult to intercept because uh, from a EW point of view, right, and to detect because it's coming in very low. Um, and so actually identifying where it is is difficult. It navigates using uh, like four nipples that three of them are for uh, different navigational systems. So GPS, GLONASS, Baidu. Um, and then the fourth one measures interference between the others, right? So if you're trying to do navigational jamming, then it will identify that and transition into inertial navigation. That's pretty sophisticated. Right. These are really well designed. Um, having said that, they're slow flying um, and they, they aren't too hard to hit with a range of things, if you can actually get yourself in the right position. The challenge is... Can you, can you hit them with small arms, or are they too high? No, you can hit no, them with small arms. Small yeah, arms. Yeah. But, but you, you need to be in the right place. And so the problem that the Ukrainians are having is that these things have enough range to come in across different axes every time, uh, from a lot of directions, to go very low, and therefore... And they're going after a lot of different targets in a lot of places. So having your air defences in the right location is pretty difficult. And these, these things are... Um self-guided right so there's no control over them so you can jam the communications they just you pre-select the target it goes to that area and then my understanding is there's this heat-seeking component where it uh, finds the thing with the biggest no uh, so no. There's, there's there's not a heat-seeking component typically okay. so that it's quite modular in the sense that you can add different seeker capabilities or data link capabilities so for example they have played with uh, in much the same way as the, the Orlan 10 UAVs are, are routinely guiding in Lancet 3, which is a Russian loitering munition type. They've played with versions of Shahid where they've got a, a laser spot uh, designate, uh, designator seeking capability on the front. Um, and so if a, an Orlan designates even a moving target, the Shahid will fly into it. Um, you can put a camera uh, seeker on there. But 
at that point, it's no longer your mass-produced, cheap and cheerful $25,000, $30,000 per munition thing that, that the Iranians can crank out in large numbers. It's now an eighty-five dollars to $100,000 munition because the Iranians have much, much uh, lower capacity to supply and source those components. Um, and so it, it's suddenly a much more specialized thing and it, it can't be used in, in huge numbers, um, as, which is the main you know, real threat from the Shahid at the moment. I mean, it's also notable that one thing that is encouraging is manpads do work against them. Um, so you know, before doing this research, I, I was quite concerned personally about whether manpads would work because uh, you wouldn't get enough heating on the, from, from friction, from being at a high speed on the, on the leading edge to generate much of a heat signature on the airframe from the front. Um, and from the back, it's a it's a small four cylinder two stroke engine, so um, you know it's not a huge heat signature. But the Ukrainians are adamant that no, no, man pads do work, um, and so in, even their old ones, the Iglas. Yeah, so so of course the Shahids, uh, you know, in, in some ways, it's a good use for for things like even like Strela, uh, the really old ones, because Shahid, unlike a helicopter, doesn't have a defensive aid suite, so it doesn't. You you can still effectively use man pads that would be fairly ineffective against uh, any aircraft with a reasonably modern self-defense system. Um, they've also had quite a bit of success with uh, heat-seeking air-to-air missiles, so so MiG-29 with um, R-73 uh, air-to-air missiles. But the issue there is just the, the, the cost for those missiles is several million dollars. There are not all that many of them, and so it's not a sustainable way, even though it's quite effective. Um, you know, they've, they've had instances of MiG-29s carrying six R-73s having six Shahid kills in one sortie, but it's it's just not something that, that is a sustainable pillar of, of the defence there. So it's it's about getting them, uh, as we've seen from the UK MOD over the past week, an announcement of a 1,000 additional um, short-range air-to-air missiles, sorry, ground-to-air missiles, um, so presumably a mix of manpad, HVM, and possibly other things. Um, equally, uh, suggestions that the, the US is now sending uh, in the latest announcement Avenger, which firing Stinger from a, a Humvee platform, again, potentially ideal for use against Shahid, um, especially since it is more mobile than teams carrying them around uh, on foot. Um, Manpads also work at night, but of course only if the people in question have night vision goggles that are sophisticated enough to spot the Shahids. So yeah, again, it's a question of, it's not necessarily an unbelievably hard technological problem to solve. It's just one that the Ukrainians aren't set up to solve efficiently or effectively, and certainly not across the whole country. And it's not something that the West has put enough thought into to have an easy and uh, affordable answer at scale to immediately supply. Do we know where they're flying them from? Is it from Crimea, from Belarus, Belgorod, all of the above? All of the above, uh, and including from inside Ukraine as well. Um, and it's also worth noting that the IGC are operating in Ukraine, helping the Russians do this. So, uh, you, don't, you don't need airfields for these, right? You can no, no. launch them off the road. You can launch them off a trailer, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the Ukrainian side for a second. So you, you mentioned, Jack, that um, the um, dwindling supplies of air defense missiles could be a huge problem. So um, as much as we've talked about the challenges that the Russians are having, if the Ukrainian air defense runs out of missiles, that could change everything, right? It won't change everything, but it, it means that the Russians can employ some of the things that they have done effectively in Syria in Ukraine, uh, because all of a sudden they can sit above the manpad ceiling and start being much more accurate with air-delivered bombs. Um, and then they can inflict very heavy attrition, right? So, so there is a, a real issue with tactical air defense, essentially, 
that can go above the manpad ceiling uh, as a specific requirement. Um, the other point I would flag about this is that we need to make sure we don't make the same mistake that we did with artillery. So with artillery, we dumped 14 different artillery systems into Ukraine, right? Each of which has its own logs, maintenance, training, etc. And so for the Ukrainians, if they have a unit with four of these different artillery systems and only a few of each, when one of those batteries needs to get rotated out for maintenance, do they also change the fitters and the maintainers and the logistics personnel? Or do they just keep the person in the unit you know, maintaining whatever replaces it in the unit? If it's a different system, they're not necessarily going to maintain it properly, right? Plus, keeping track of all these different charge bags, which frankly look pretty similar, um, in terms of which one goes with which gun when you're trying to move all that stuff from Poland and from other places, is a logistics nightmare, right? And a maintenance nightmare. So availability is very low. Um, if we inflict that same problem on the Ukrainians with air defenses, it will be even worse because there aren't that many munitions for a lot of our air defense systems uh, and the training burden is a lot higher. And so it is really, really important that we take a strategic approach. We decide what we are all going to focus on from an industrial point of view to be able to provide at scale um, as a sustainable solution. And I would, so it's not about you know, rummaging around in the cupboard and looking for which bits of kit we don't need to use anymore. This is about thinking ahead and saying, how do we make this support a sustainable thing? So back in July, I had a podcast with the um, retired Air Marshal uh, Greg Bagwell, the former Deputy Commander of the um, RAF Air Command. And he, I think, made a very compelling case that um, that was back in July that we should be providing F-16s to Ukraine um, and uh, you know, talked about how we can overcome some of the training and logistical and maintenance and repair challenges. Um, and he made the point that this is not about training the Ukrainians to fly, fly them like us. It's about letting them do some very basic things with them um, that, um, frankly, they're doing with the MiGs right now. What's your view on that? Uh, so, <laughs> I'll, uh, I mean, broadly speaking, I agree with Bagas's point that he that the Ukrainians, uh, in the medium term, need a Western fighter capability. Um, because you know th there is such a manifest difficulty in providing them with sustainably uh, the medium to long term level of tactical air defense that they need, because Western stocks are, are pretty low. Um, we, it's just not something we've invested heavily in, uh, because we've had air dominance for the last thirty years. Um, so you know they they, they need something uh, even at a relatively small scale that can meet Russian fighters despite the altitude disparity at a, on a relatively equal footing or ideally from a superior range, which has got harder since the MiG-31s uh, have been uh, turning up with, with R-37, which is a very long-range air-to-air missile. Um, they're also now using it on Sukhoi-35 as well. Um, so, you know, the, the problem I would have is with the selection of F-16 um, until there is some form of ceasefire or lull of several months at the minimum, because uh, you know, th there are kind of two questions on the Ukrainian Air Force fixed-wing side. There is the, what could we potentially give them that might actually work and be supportable and sustainable while the shooting is still going on? Vice, what do we uh, rely on to build up a sustainable air defence and deterrence capability post this phase of the war, whatever sort of shape it, it, it ends up in? Uh, and I think for the latter... You know, F-16 is almost certainly the right answer. It's the it's a good blend of 
there are lots of them around. There are lots of European allies and, and, and potentially American airframes as well that are coming out of service to be replaced by F-35 or other things that, that are in reasonably good shape. It's compatible with almost every weapon system in the NATO arsenal. Um, it's, it's a good mix of capabilities at a reasonable price. The problem is, uh, so there's a few. First of all, it's an American U.S. Air Force fighter aircraft. It's designed for operation from long, pristine runways with a very nice smooth surface and a lot of very expensive, quite large ground support equipment. Um, in, not a lot of in that nice in Ukraine, hangers. right? <laughs> right. Like it, it, it's, it's not that you couldn't set it up in, in peacetime. And, you, and, you know, there's plenty of countries that have had great success uh, integrating F-16 from a position of never having operated a Western aircraft before. Um, but it takes time and you can't do it while you're being hit with cruise missiles in Iskander. Um, so, you know, for example, if you were to start resurfacing and extending some of the Ukrainians' uh, runways to be suitable for F-16, the Russians would see it from orbit uh, and would just put large holes in the runways. Um, equally, you know, F-16 has a, a you know, it, it's got a really quite flimsy undercarriage, um, which is designed to be lightweight uh, and to keep the thrust to weight high and keep it an excellent, you know, performing aircraft. But that means that if you were to try and operate them from the strips the Ukrainian Air Force is using now, which are relatively small, dispersed, move around a lot, and are generally pretty rough, the undercarriage probably wouldn't take it, um, even if you could support it. Something like F-18 would be better from that uh, perspective, but then you're into a problem of there aren't nearly so many. Um, the Canadians have bought up the Australians ones, so uh, and they need every aircraft they can get. The Finns need everyone they can get until they get F-35 in, in, in the late 2020s. Um, the Kuwaitis don't have nearly enough um, to give any away. And the US Marine Corps is the only other real source of them, and they're not in good shape um, in terms of either numbers for their requirements or indeed the life and, and health of those airframes. So it's not ideal, not to mention there's quite a lot of American political reluctance, I think, to, to um, really push and take the political risk, particularly the number of contractors that would be required to try and set that sort of thing up. Um, the the obvious operational fit is the Saab Gripen, um, because it was designed from the outset, uh, literally from the, the first bolt up, for exactly the sort of operations the Ukrainians are currently doing. Um, because of Sweden's, uh, up until very recently, um, uh, non-aligned status, they have had an armed... An armed uh, neutrality in effect policy that allows them to defend themselves or, or plan to defend themselves against this sort of Russian attack on their own and as such they've always assumed they would have to fight from dispersed bases including highway strips um, the Gripen is designed therefore not only to be relatively robust it's very easy to maintain compared to American fighter aircraft or indeed any other European fighter aircraft um, you know, there's no torque wrenches required to open any of the access panels you need to do. They're just push toggles you can use with gloves on. Um, you know, the, the auxiliary power unit will start up the aircraft, do all the self-bit tests uh, and get, a, you know, get it going from, from cold. Even if you don't have external ground power, the, the maintenance teams are six people, only one of whom has to be highly trained. So, you know, the others can be conscripts or even troops from two vehicles to turn an aircraft around and rearm it with sort of very, very basic universal tools. Um because this is exactly what this aircraft was designed to do. Um, it can also take the Meteor missile where we to be willing to supply it, which is by far the longest range missile we have and uh, would actually still be highly effective against Russian fighters at the sort of ranges they're engaging, even from very low. 
Uh, it's got a good internal electronic warfare suite that's designed specifically for okay, Russian aircraft. But, but Russian I hear radars. a but coming up, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, from, from an operational standpoint, it, it's kind of ideal. The but is political. Um, so Sweden uh, is pretty new to the whole NATO thing. Um, they've been a partner for a long time. Um, but it, it has a very deep tradition of neutrality. Um, and, you know, being the first one to jump and supply fighter aircraft... Um, is, is a, a big, big ask. Exactly. Uh, on the other hand, it, it, it's actually quite easy to make the argument that this would be a far less escalatory step than most things, given that you could supply them, frankly, without air-to-ground munitions if you wanted to make them purely defensive. Um, you know, I, I, I find it hard to argue that's not less escalatory than supplying thousands of long-range rocket artillery and hundreds of thousands of shells to explicitly kill Russian troops in huge numbers. Um but also, you know, there are leased fleets with, for example, Czechia, with, with Hungary, um, that are coming up for renewal. Um, you know, there could be potentially deals there. Uh, Sweden has so far lost out uh, in fighter competitions, with, with the F-35 in particular. Um, and, you know, th- there is therefore a sort of national market, self-interest right? thing of saying, you know, it, given it's a perfect operational fit, there would be a strong, you know, purely self-interest incentive to to, you know, supply it where it would do such good in such a high profile. But of course, you know, it's a huge political thing. There would have to be agreements on how to fund it. There is a large, for example, EU funding pool on military assistance for the use for which is not necessarily terribly clear yet. Um, So there could be, you know, potentially things to be done there. But again, it comes down to political will. But if you're asking what the operational fit is for a Ukrainian fighter aircraft in the next kind of six months, it's gripping. One more question here. Um, a lot has been made uh, of the chips ban um, on uh, imports of chips into Russia. Um, Jack, you, you've looked at some of the you know, pieces of missiles that have broken up over Ukraine. Um, looks like they're still getting Western chips components. Is that because um, it's pretty easy to uh, smuggle that stuff in? You can put it in your pocket and uh, get uh, large numbers of, uh, of them, you know, brought in from Kazakhstan or China, or whatever. And uh, do we have any hope of really impacting their uh, um, military industrial complex uh, with the with the semiconductor ban? Yeah. So when you crack open pretty much any Russian weapon system, and we've been systematically doing that with all of them uh, that we can get our hands on, um, they are absolutely crammed with Western microelectronics. Um, a significant proportion of those, lots of them are commercially widely available, you're never going to stop them getting to Russia, uh, a significant proportion of them, of them are export controlled, um, including, for example, in the Shahid, right? And Iran's been under sanction for a very long time, and yet the Shahid is crammed full of export controlled components. Um, so that tells you something, which is it's hard to stop. Having said that, I think seeing this as a stop-start thing, as our objective, is probably the wrong way to look at it. Um, in order for the Russians to change a chip on one of their chipboards for their military systems, they have to recertify the whole system, that it works, the FSB have to get involved, or part of the Academy of Sciences, etc. Um, just running the checks to approve the system takes them about three months. And that doesn't count the period in which they're trying to actually find the substitute for the chip. And some of those chips can't be substituted, which would mean complete system redesign. Right. So you only need to disrupt one chip getting in to potentially screw up a whole range of different things. But that, that assumes that they don't cut down the bureaucracy for certification and just 
make make do with yeah but then then there are all sorts of fun things you can do right like supply chips that don't work properly so um you know that you've that that that's a, if they do that that's fantastic um so i think the objective here is, is twofold the first thing i would say is the volume of chips going into russia has actually increased since august it's not great um and a lot of that is people shifting to illegal supply chains um now if you chase the companies you don't get anywhere because they just set up another one. But there are actually a limited number of Russian special service personnel who know how to run these networks, procurement networks. And so if we get smart about exposing them and targeting them, then I think it is possible to start seriously constraining um, the flows sufficiently to disrupt Russian industry. Um, The other thing I'd say is a lot of the ways in which the Iranians continue to get this stuff is because enforcement is one step behind uh, when you start moving between countries, right? The US is quite happy to export something to Germany. The German authorities find out about it slightly too late to stop it getting because of Schengen outside of German borders, but in the EU. And then it gets, you know, you're one step behind the whole way. Um, However, given the existential issues involved in some of this stuff, I think actually this should drive some, should we say more proactive enforcement and more international proactive enforcement between allies. If we can get to that state where it's not just country by country customs authorities checking lists, then we might well get ahead of this in some cases. And as I say, the objective is disrupt, not deny. Well, on that hopeful note, we'll end it there. Thanks again, guys. Terrific report. Encourage everyone to read it. Um, And thanks for doing all this great work. Thanks for having us. Cheers.